We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Oh, there we are. We welcome you this morning to Fellowship Bible Church. Glad that you are here. It is super to see you. I was just commending these folks for sitting up in the front row, filling up the whole front row. It's excellent, and I'm enjoying to see that. So if you're visiting this morning, thank you for coming. Our scripture reading is going to be in Ezekiel 35 this morning, and then after we have the scripture reading, we'll invite the men to come up to take the offering and Selah to come and share the music that she's prepared for us, and for the Lord, really. Ezekiel 35 now, and this is a judgment on Mount Seir, which is another word for the country of Edom. See the book of Obadiah, for example. Ezekiel 35, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it, and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against you, I will stretch out my hand against you and make you most desolate. I shall lay your cities waste and you shall be desolate. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, because you have had an ancient hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword at the time of their calamity when their iniquity came to an end. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood And blood shall pursue you, since you have not hated blood, therefore blood shall pursue you. Thus I will make Mount Seir most desolate and cut off from it the one who leaves and the one who returns. And I will fill its mountain with the slain on your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines, those who are slain by the sword shall fall. I will make you perpetually desolate and your cities shall be uninhabited then you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you have said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess them, although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will do according to your anger and according to the envy which you showed in your hatred against them, and I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have heard all your blasphemies which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are desolate, they are given to us to consume. Thus with your mouth you have boasted against me and multiplied your words against me. I have heard them. Thus says the Lord God, The whole earth will rejoice when I make you desolate, as you rejoiced because the inheritance of the house of Israel was desolate. So I will do to you. You shall be desolate, O Mount Seir, as well as all of Edom, all of it. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Well, they reaped what they sowed, didn't they? Yes, very clearly the case. All right, I'm going to ask the men if you would come forward to take up the offering this morning and invite Selah if she will come and share the music ministry. Oh, for a thousand tongues. Father in heaven, we thank you for the offering this morning, both the finances, but also the music. And I pray that it will honor and glorify your name and that you will be pleased with what happens here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen and a hearty thanks. All right, are you ready to get into some studying? Philippians chapter 4, please. Philippians chapter 4. We are here to learn, but not only to learn, to learn to put into practice. And this is a very practical area of theology that we need to address this morning. I titled the message uh, if you're in a way that if you're paying attention to uh, societal matters might be a little uh, a little bit inflammatory. <laughs> you think? Uh, no, no godly living, no peace. God is near to those with godly patterns of thinking and behavior. And this text tells us that. In fact, in Philippians 4, uh, verse number 8 and 9 is where we'll be this morning. I'd like to read those verses to you and then connect them to what we looked at last week and then move into some of the details of these verses this week. Uh, and as I said last week, these are among the most common uh, verses that I use not only for myself and family, but also for counselees who come and have a problem with anxious thoughts and things of that nature, and you'll see why. Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, the things which you learned and received, and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, last week I made a fairly big deal about how we must take the entire passage as a unified exhortation instead of splitting it into separate pieces and expecting, taking the one part of it, kind of lifting it out of the context, taking that one part and expecting it to quote-unquote work against the problem that we want it to work against. What is that problem? Well, here it's anxious thoughts. You know, we want a solution right away for our depressive thoughts, for our anxious thoughts, for our worried thoughts, and so on. But we can't do that. Our anxiety is caused by things, and not just by a mere lack of prayer. In other words, I can't when you come to me and say, I've, I've, I've got a problem with anxiety, I'm not only going to ask you, well, have you been praying lately? Now, interestingly, that's often a problem in itself. You know, I have, my prayer life hasn't been, yeah, and you haven't been corporately praying, and you haven't been praying at home, and you haven't been praying with your family. Uh, but that's not the only thing that causes anxiety. Certainly weak prayer life is part of it, but other areas of sin in our lives can weigh heavily upon us, even if we don't at first recognize that. And so the entire package of these verses comes together, and really we can almost say the entire package of New Testament Christianity comes together, but I can't go and bring all that into one message or two messages here for us. But this context certainly uh, together, rejoicing, being gracious, knowing that the Lord is coming soon. I, I'm taking these right from verses five, uh, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, uh, that whole section. Uh, asking uh, God's help, praying, giving thanks, uh, thinking right things, behaving properly. All of these things together will lead to the peace of God, which is that inner calmness of soul produced by God. Now, notice a couple of things interesting about this piece. God didn't say here, Paul didn't say, by the way, when I say God didn't say or Paul didn't say, I'm, I'm making the two of them equal. What God said, Paul wrote. And what Paul wrote is what God said. And we discussed this yesterday. If, if, if the meaning is communicated in the text, it was communicated through Paul, it was communicated, intended to be communicated by God, and that's the meaning that's there. We can't say that there's hidden meaning that was revealed uh, here. It's, if it's not revealed if it's hidden. But in any case, one thing you can say from this is you don't see here that God tells us, well, look, if your prayers are answered 
positively or affirmatively, like the way you wanted, then you can have peace. Does it say that there? No, you give your requests over to God, and whether he answers it positively, negatively, doesn't answer at all or seem to, doesn't matter. The peace of God can still be your portion. And it, once you get, that, get a hold of that, it's so powerful in your life because you cast those burdens on the Lord and you find He sustains you whether the burdens are still there or not, whether the temptations are still present or not, whether excuse me, <coughs> the disease that you have is still there or not. You can have that peace. <clears throat> Another interesting thing that really ties the whole section together in, uh, in one package is this. Look at the end of verse number 9. I'm going to read it the way that it looks like in the Greek text. And don't worry, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand this. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of the peace. I, you say, well, pastor, you're adding words to the Bible. No, I'm actually not adding words. The, the article the is actually the. How do you say the? The or the? The article, T-H-E, is in the Greek text. The God of the peace will be with you. Let me see if I can help you understand that. The extra word there, T-H-E, the, is in the Greek text before the word peace. And what it's doing is it's saying, the God of the peace that I just told you about in verse 7 is going to be with you. And so the two paragraphs, remember last week I said you have two paragraphs. One ends with the peace of God will guard your heart. And the second one ends with the God of peace will be with you. Those two paragraphs really are one unit of of thought that we're trying to put together. That very peace from verse 7 is the peace that God is talking about, the peace that passes understanding after praying about your anxious thoughts and giving thanks to God and making petition about those things. The peace in verse 9 means that the God, the one who brings the peace of God to you, that God will be with you. This is not just the abstract concept or feeling of peace that will be present in your life, but the peace of God is with you because the God of peace is with you. The God of that very peace, the peace of the God of the peace of God will be with you because God is actually there dwelling with you and in you. The Bible says that God is dwelling with those, he dwells with those who have a contrite spirit. God dwells with those who, although he's in a high and holy place, he dwells with the one who has a contrite and humble spirit. That's Psalm 34, 18 and Isaiah 57, 15. When you draw near to God, he will draw near to you because you are then of a suitable character to be near to God. And so when you're near God, the peace of God rubs off on you. You get that idea? The God of peace is with you. That's why the peace of God is with you. The God who produces the peace is near to those who are in his family. So this is the idea of the section tying everything together. Now you ask, how does this happen? How can I have that experience of inner peace, inner calm, inner harmony in my life? Again, it's not this kind of mystical idea, you know, of, uh, of the what, the sound of the ocean waves in your soul, you know, and you're listening to the to the mood music, and it gets you in that peaceful mood. This is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the peace of God, even in the most difficult of circumstances. So, how does this happen? Well, Paul gives us some more details here. He wants us to have, first of all, biblical thinking second of all, biblical behavior, and then we will have as a result of that biblical peace. That's the outline of the message very simply today. Biblical thinking, first of all, in verse number 8. <clears throat> I wish I would have a, uh, uh, a, count, a counter or um, 
a crowdsourced piece of information that would tell me what are the most common Bible verses memorized in the world. That would be kind of cool. Uh, I'm sure many of us have many Bible verses sort of memorized, and we've probably forgotten some of the details, but we have them you know, banging around up there in our minds. But Philippians 4.8 has to be one near the top of the list, I think. If it's not near the top of your list, may I commend it to you to be at the top of your list? This verse is so helpful. It is so helpful. The battle between the flesh and the spirit rages in the life of every believer. Do you know that? You don't have to be ashamed of it. You don't have to say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a low-class Christian because I've got this battle going on. It's, it's only true Christians that have the battle going on, isn't it? Because other people don't, you know, non-Christians don't care uh, as much or in the kind of way that we do. Every believer has this. Where it rages is in the mind, in the inner person, in the soul. You may look like a perfectly calm person out there, but there might be some things roiling in your mind that just are really bothersome to you. Sinful thoughts, vulgar words, lustful fantasies, inordinate desires. And sometimes, sometimes those thoughts squirt out into our speech or our behavior. Did you notice how I said that? Your behavior is not why you sin. Your behavior may be sin, but it arises from something inside. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth pokes, uh, the heart rather pokes its way out through the mouth. And so the battle is in the mind. You have to, as a Christian, get a hold of this idea that the battle for my life starts right here between the ears, between the temples. And as a corrective, the apostle instructs us to spend our mental time on certain kinds of things. First of all, those things that are true, not false things. Things that are valid, things that are reliable, things that are honest things. True things correspond to how things really are. Now, I know for some of you philosophers out there, I've just told you that I believe in the correspondence theory of truth, okay? which means that truth corresponds to how things really are. But it's not really how we look at them. Truth corresponds to how God sees things. I'm, I, am, I, I, I do get troubled when so much false information is circulating out and about and people believe that stuff. We're not supposed to be believing false things. And if you can't verify that it's a true thing, then you need to hold it with tentativeness until you know for sure that it's a true thing that you're holding in your mind. Truth corresponds to how God sees things, not how man sees them. What the Bible presents as true is true. So we can start with that. Okay, God is true. Let God be true and... Every man could be a liar, but God is still true. So, in the Bible, guides us how to discern about other things. Now, the Bible, this is a side note here, but the Bible presents information sometimes that is false information. Now, you say, wait, how does that happen? What is pastor saying? Well, it records the wrong words of Job's friends. It records sometimes the words of Satan, but it does so accurately portraying those words in, in fact, how they were conveyed, and it then conveys by them information that is not true. Here's an example. You will not surely die. That's false. That is false, but it's truly communicated to us in the Word of God as a way to uh, emphasize the real truth. What is the real truth? The real truth was that if Adam and Eve, you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And they did die, starting immediately in their spirits. This in turn reminds us that the wages of sin is death. So God uses those things, uh, if you will, as foils, as kind of contrast by the, you know, by the opposite to help us understand the true. And so in that sense, we understand the Bible to be true. 
truth characterizes God. And Paul is saying truth needs to characterize us too. Uh, A Christian who has a problem with lying has a real problem. Ephesians 4 tells us, lie not to one another. Colossians 3 says that. Uh, What is lying? Where does lying come from? Some desire to protect yourself or to show yourself better than you are or cover some other sin that you've done or something like that. The scripture says we are to think things that are true, things that are true, not things that are speculations that might be true. Sometimes people worry about things that simply aren't true things. What might happen tomorrow? Well, is that true? It might happen, but it might not happen. So is that thing you're worried about the truth? Secondly, Paul says, I want you to think on those things which are noble, honorable, dignified, worthy of respect, above reproach. God is noble. Christians should be noble. God is true. We should be true. We should be like God in this regard. Thirdly, God tells us to think on things that are just. What does justice mean? It means that which conforms to God's standard of right or righteousness. Today we have social justice and we have economic justice and we have environmental justice. But my friends, what about divine justice? Does it at least get a place at the table? The fact is that it rules the entire table. Divine justice is the only true and real kind of justice. God is just, and we should be too. And our thinking should be as well. Perhaps think of a current contemporary situation or contemporary philosophy and ask yourself, is that thing that I've held really in accordance with divine justice? Divine justice. One of the common ones we talk to people about is the idea of, of um, having uh, uh, sons pay for the sins of their fathers. And that's believed today as something that is, is, is good and necessary. But that's not just because God has been very clear about that. This is just one example. Fourthly, God tells us to think on things that are pure. Now, that may be the real battle. That may be a real spot for us to focus on. He's talking about moral purity or chastity. Let me uh, share a couple of verses that talk about this uh, idea, or use this word, rather. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse number 22. The Scripture says uh, the following, uh, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Now, that's in the context of church ministry and uh, ordaining elders to the ministry. Keep yourself pure. Another one is in Titus 2.5. In Titus 2.5, it says, uh, the context is that the older women are admonishing the young women how to live, how to love their husbands, to love their children. In verse 5, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So they are to be chaste, pure. James 3.17, the wisdom that is from above is first pure. And 1 John 3.3, I'll read that one as well, because that one could probably uh, use some further attention in our thinking. 1 John 3.3, it says, And everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as... Sorry, let me read it again, the way that I got it backwards. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. This hope in Christ purifies himself just as he is pure. God has no impurity in him, does he? If you want to draw near to God, do you think you can do that with a bunch of impurities? 
No, and, the, and the, the baggage that you carry in your mind is just as visible to God as if you were carrying it outside in your, in your backpack or in your suitcase. He sees it just as plain as day. God has no impurity. We should be similar in our thinking and in our life. Now, you have a pause from the list here for a moment. You have so many, um, a fixed number of what I'll call mental cycles in a minute or in an hour or a day. And you can choose how to spend them. Yes? Are you thinking with me or are you falling asleep out there? <laughs> I got the idea of, and I've used this from uh, the design of digital computers, this idea of mental cycles. These computers operate in accordance with a clock signal. And that clock signal runs at a very fast pace, but in in any one period of time in a micro division of a second, they can do a, a unit of work. And scheduling software in the computer, right now at this moment, in all of your pockets and purses, scheduling software is deciding what to spend time on on that little computer that you have in your cell phone or your desktop computer or whatever. That scheduling software is deciding, I'm going to think about this for the moment. And then I'm going to schedule something else, and I'm going to think about that for another moment. So how it spends its computational time, it thinks about, in a sense, according to how the programmer told it to think, and it does some of this thing and some of another thing, and it may switch between several of those things in any given second. But it only has so many cycles in a second to do that work and no more. Similarly, you too have a choice about what you can think about. Your personal brain scheduler has to decide what are you going to think about in this segment of time that you have to think about things. You have only so many hours in a day, and, you know, newsflash, you only have so many days in your life. And you have a significant measure of freedom of how you're going to spend those mental cycles in those days and months and years that you have. You have to choose how you're going to spend that time engaging your mind or trying to avoid engaging your mind. You can engage it with one thing or another thing, but you, you need to make a conscious choice about what that is as a Christian person. What to work on, what to think on in your free time, what to watch and what to read. Why? Because what you watch and what you read and what you work on and what you all that is all thinking. It's all what's going on in your mind. And so if it's not pure, if it's not just, if it's not true, if it's not noble, whatever you're reading, thinking, seeing, hearing, whatever, your thoughts are operating. And you have to ask yourself, am I scheduling my brain to do the things that it should be doing? Number five, your thinking needs to be lovely on those things which are lovely thinking, which that, and that, what that means is agreeable or pleasing or delightful. And all of these are together, so you can't just say, well, that thing delights me to think about, you know, that sinful thing delights me to think. No, that's not the kind of loveliness we're talking about, the kind of agreeableness. Where it's in agreement with all these other things, holy and pure and, and all of that, true. Number uh, six, that which is of good report. That means praiseworthy or commendable. Are you thinking about things that are praiseworthy things or commendable things? And then there are two more. Uh, in my uh, notes here, I've called them out as letters G and H. Se uh, the number seven on our list, G here, is anything of virtue. Anything of virtue. He changes up the list here, which might throw you if you're trying to memorize it, but he says, if there is any virtue... Any excellence of character. And what he, when he says anything here, what he's trying to get you to do is say, okay, I've got to think now. I've got to think. There's latitude in this instruction here. This is not a, a, a kind of limiting thing, but it's of all the things that you have to, to think about, to participate in, you have to look and see if those things are virtuous. There are many such things that are virtuous things, but there are many things that are not virtuous also. Those do not qualify. Finally, he says in verse 8, 
if there is anything praiseworthy. Praiseworthy. You could ask yourself, is there really anything worthy of praise in this program, television program, this magazine article, this, is it praiseworthy? Anything worthy of admiration or recognized or approved for its true good? Paul says all of that, those are all eight descriptions of the kinds of things that we need to meditate on, to give careful thought, to reckon or consider, to ponder, our our minds to dwell on these things. And that's easy enough to say, you know, I've just said it, but how do you implement this thinking pattern? I mean, to do so takes energetic mental effort. Sometimes we like to put our minds in neutral by watching, you know, a sporting event on television or seeing something on the computer. But, but then, in fact, our mind is engaged in that thing that we're observing. You can't deny that. If you're really not thinking, you must be sleeping. Even then you can be thinking, of course, you know, in your dreams, subconsciously. Sometimes it comes to your consciousness level. Uh, but, you know, watch out putting your mind in neutral. Or watch out the kinds of things you're watching and seeing because that is a form of meditation. You know, if your mind is in neutral, then other things may well fill it. Bad things, dangerous things. Other times we're consumed with thinking about problem X or situation Y or person Z or worry A or worshiping God or we're consumed with praying or balancing our checkbook or reading our Bible or working on some home project or whatever. These things fill our mind. Maybe uh, they don't allow much room for anything else at the time, you know, especially if we're not a great multitasking type. We want to just focus, you know. For me, when I'm studying, I cannot long listen to uh, something else or listen to music or something like that. I just have to have quiet. Sometimes I'll put in my earplugs and, uh, and just go to town on my studies, and I enjoy that. Uh, quiet very much, but even if you are able to do some multitasking, there's only so much you can do, and when the time is filled and when your mind is filled, that's it. You don't want to allow room for other things, though, by just shifting into neutral, and this is why I strongly advocate anybody who has trouble with their thoughts, you must keep busy with productive, I'm talking about productive in the mind of God, things to engage your mind with those activities. If you're idle, your flesh will find something for your idle mind to think about. May I change a little common phrase? Idle minds are the devil's workshop. Now, long-established patterns of bad thought are hard to fix. I'm aware of that. See, bad thoughts can be kind of like an addiction to drugs, you know? It's not just so easy to say, I've said it before, cut it out, (laughs) but it's not just so easy to do that. Um, But, I mean, at some point you have to say to yourself, look, I can't be doing this anymore. I've got to engage in, in more productive and more godly things. So I encourage you to make a faith filled concerted effort to establish new heavenly patterns of thought. Colossians 3.2, set your affections on, not on things down here, things above, where Christ is, dwelling at the right hand of God. Your Savior is there. Set your mind on those things. Check yourself with this question. When, when, When the thoughts are in your mind, you know, push the pause button and ask, should I be thinking this? Should I be thinking like this? Should I be thinking about this? And if I make a quick comparison to whatever is true and honest and just and noble and pure and lovely and of good report and praiseworthy and all of that virtuous, and and it fails the comparison, then I need to switch mental gears and direct my brain to think about other stuff or to use the computer analogy, I need to have my scheduler decide to spend some cycles on some other stuff. To go back to the automotive example, is is your brain clutch grinding and not wanting to shift out of that gear? 
Have you ever had a transmission that keeps wanting to pop into one certain gear? Kevin must know about this. You know, if your brain keeps like, you're trying to shift into second and it keeps going back to first, you're like, man, I got to take this thing to the shop, you know? I've got to spend some time working on this brain transmission here so that I can shift into something else. Keep working at it. Don't give up. Don't give up because what happens is after you begin to establish new patterns of heavenly kinds of thinking, it will take over. It will begin to uh, fill your mind and you'll begin to have more victory over those difficult thoughts. So compare your thoughts to those things. Talk to yourself, as some have said, and say, self, am I thinking the way I should be thinking? If not, stop. Start up another direction. Go do something else. You might have to get up off of your couch and say, I'm going to go do this so that my thinking will be focused on that instead of on this other thing. Very helpful approach to things, I think, because then you're actually implementing this when when the Apostle Paul says, think on these kind of things, It's a command, and you need to do what you have to do to obey that command. Now, the second area of help to us when we have anxiety is not only biblical thinking, but biblical behaving. And Paul says that in verse number 9. And normally when I read this and have memorized it, I have thought of this as stating four different things. The things which you, number one, learned, two, received, three, heard, and four, saw in me. And that's fine, but I, I've, when I was reading on this this week, I realized, huh, actually, I should put these in two pairs instead of four separate things. First of all are the things you learned and received. You know, you've seen the advertisements on YouTube for so, so-and-so's master class on whatever, you know, their master class on producing music or, the, or chess or, or whatever. Paul gave a master class to the Philippians on how to be good Christians. And he said, you learned in that class. And not only did you learn, but th- this is the key. You know, you're learning right now, but are you receiving? And he says to them, you learned... And you received. You welcomed it. It's not just like you were sitting in a class and you man, this professor, if we could just get this semester over with. He's just prattling on and on and on about, who knows, I don't even know what he's talking about. I hope the exam isn't soon because I'm toast if it is. You're not receiving what he's talking about. Here Paul says, you learned and you received. You were you, t- you were taught, you were, this is the, the word that comes from to make a disciple. You became a, a disciple a, a student. You were learning and receiving. And what was Paul doing when he was doing that? Well, he was carrying out the Great Commission. He was making disciples and teaching them to observe or obey or keep everything that the Lord had commanded him. So Paul, all, you know what the book of Acts is? Paul, I mean, especially after chapter 13, the Apostle Paul carrying out the Great Commission. That's what it is. And how did he do that? He started new churches. Okay? So, and when he did that, he, he taught the people, and they learned it and received it. Like in Ephesus, he was there for over two years, teaching in the hall of that fellow named Tyrannus, and teaching them, and they were hearing the word, and the word spread throughout all of Asia Minor. But then next, he says, not only did you receive or learn and receive, but secondly, you heard and saw in me. Okay, this is the difference between um, taking the class on theory and then taking the class which is actually like an apprenticeship. You, You not only did the book learning and received that, but you also did what? You heard and saw in my life. Paul told the Thessalonians, he said, You've received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Not to be lazy, not to be idle, not to be looking for free handouts, but working hard. So that was one of his examples to the the people in Thessalonica and the church there, which is different than this church, but same kind of thing. He gave an example for them. So he didn't just tell them, he did what? He showed them. He told them and he showed them how to live for God. And then God 
through Paul, tells the Philippian church those things that you, you learned and received them, you heard and saw an example, do them, and the God of peace will be with you. The word do there is this word, put into practice. It's from the Greek verb proso, which does mean to practice or to do, to accomplish. That's what he wants them to do. This is a present tense plural command. What does that mean? It's a command, okay? It's incumbent upon us. It's plural, meaning it applies to the whole church, and it's present tense, meaning it's always ongoing. You must put this into practice. Now, uh, yesterday also with the men, we talked about uh, how, to, how to apply the text of Scripture. And we kind of talked about it at a, at a high level, maybe an abstract level too much. Um, but one of the things we said was after you study the text, you've understood the, the details of the text, you've explained them, put them all together, you know what the meaning of it is. Here the meaning is pretty easy. You know, the, the things that you learned from Paul, received, heard, saw, okay, we gave some examples of that. We understand the meaning of that. We understand the meaning of put them into practice, and that's written directly to the Philippians. But application to us is straightforward. We don't have to go through a lot of machinations to try to figure out how does this work in our life. Paul is writing to a Christian church. We are one of those, aren't we? We're a Christian church. Furthermore, we know that the New Testament letters are meant to be general documents, not just for one specific church and one specific time and place in the first century, but all the way until the Lord returns for all churches. That's why God uh, preserved them for us, wrote, you know, inspired the text and preserved it for us down to this day. We know that even of the Old Testament text, which is you know, thousands of more years removed from us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, and uh, 11, he said, these things are written for your learning, for your admonition, for you to, so that you will not lust after evil things as they also, the, the uh, Jewish people, lusted, specifically around the time of the Exodus. We must put these things into practice then. There's no question that we can, you know, kind of wish it away or say, well, that's fine for them. No, it's clearly the case that this is for us. And then... When we have patterns of biblical thinking and biblical behaving, we will have biblical peace. Verse 9b at the end there, after all of this, he says, and the God of peace will be with you. This is a promise of the word of God. Do you believe the promises of God's word? Do you believe the promises of God's word? That's right. Even when the death dew lies cold on the brow, the promises of God are true. There is no God, there can be no failure in those promises because God cannot fail. He is infallible. This is another one of those promises of God. One of the things that evidences a Christian person is do they continue to believe in the promises of God? Those who don't uh, continue in believing in the Word of God, or demonstrating there's a severe problem, if not entire lack of true life in the first place. But think on this. You have you know, kind of this kind of thinking, this kind of living, this kind of behaving, and you will experience the presence of God. The God, the God of peace, will be with you. Think on that thought for a moment. The God of peace will be with you. Before you were saved... You were so far from God, you can't even compute how far from God you were. Your, your iniquities, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, have made a separation between you and your God. You were in darkness. Now you are light in the Lord. You've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. You were uh, strangers and foreigners and aliens from the promises of God. And now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were enemies of God. Now you're not only friends, you're children of God, adopted as, as children of the Heavenly Father. What a blessing to think the God of peace will be with you. He wasn't with you before you were saved. He's with you now and will be even closer with you as you walk with Him. This is a parallel to the promise at the end of verse 7. The peace of God will 
Guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus in such a way that it will surpass all understanding. Now, this doesn't mean that the circumstances around you are necessarily going to be peaceful. The world is still in upheaval all the time. But, even though you don't have smooth sailing, Jesus could still be asleep in the boat with you, just like he was with the disciples. And when God is with you and his peace guards you, a certain calm assurance, not a bold arrogance at all, a calm assurance accompanies you in life, even amidst an unpeaceful world. So remember what we learned last week as well. We were thinking about how to experience peace in our inner person, despite whatever difficulties may befall us, that's not easy. But we said that the whole package of verses 4 to 9 is crucial for us. We cannot simply use one weapon in our like prayer and expect to have our anxieties melt away while we ignore all the other biblical instruction about sanctification, about our conduct toward others, about our thought life. We must rejoice in the Lord. We must be gracious people. We must stop being anxious. We must pray. We must give thanks. We must think on good and godly things and conduct ourselves in a way that agrees with what the Bible has presented us. Our prayers then will be effective under such conditions. And this is the way that the peace of God guards us and the God of peace will be with us. I'd like to say it like this. Peace comes not through a mystical means that happens apart from holiness. Peace cannot come apart from holiness. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked, Isaiah 48, 22. False prophets seduce my people, saying peace when there is no peace, Ezekiel 13, 10 says. Let me close with a couple of uh, portions from the Psalms that will just cement this idea of the peace of God being our portion and the God of peace being with us. Psalm 27 It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. And then Psalm 91 great psalm, the whole, the whole thing. I, I really can't stop reading it once you get started. It says, Psalm 91, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, of the Lord rather, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. Surely He shall, sorry, surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler And from the perilous pestilence, he shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. How many of us have done that in our youth with our moms? You've gone under the shelter of her wing. God is like a mom that way. You're not fearful there, are you? You're in peace. You have the peace of your mom with you. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes you shall look and shall see and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. And we understand we have some exalted covenant language here that doesn't promise us that we're not going to see trouble. We go on to verse 11. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. That's still a good Bible verse, even though Satan misused it, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 4 and Luke 4, 
Verse 13, you shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Because we make God our refuge, our delight, our life, we can walk confidently in him and we can have his peace because we have him who is the God, the originator of that peace. Father in heaven, we pray that as we finish our thoughts here and the peace of God and the God of peace, the God who brings the peace of God, Lord, I pray that we will take heed to what we've heard about our thinking, about our behaving, and experience that joyous peace that you can provide, only you can provide for us. In the name of Christ, I pray with thanks. Amen.